Well, uh, good to be with you this morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, like Andy said, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get connected to the, to the community here at River City. Uh, we'd also love to invite you into our uh, fall sermon series. We're working our way through the books of First and Second Thessalonians, and we're just a couple of chapters into our study. But before we dive into our passage this morning, if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, then it's important to uh, understand a little bit of the context and background for these two letters. You see, the, the Thessalonians, the group of Christians, the group of believers that Paul's writing to here, they're, they're really young in their faith. They'd just become Christians just a few months in the past. And, and when Paul had come to their city and preached the gospel, we read that story in Acts chapter 17, if you want to go back and learn more about that. And what we find there is that while a bunch of people had become Christians, um, Paul only ends up staying in the city of Thessalonica for just a couple of weeks, a month at most. Um, because the Jews in the city who'd rejected the message of the gospel, the person and the work of Jesus, uh, they kind of stirred up this giant citywide riot. They arrested the people that were hosting Paul and Silas and Timothy as companions, and, and they were accusing them all of treasonously defying Caesar for claiming that Jesus was a king. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy, these two young pastors he was training who were with him, they're forced to leave Thessalonica in the middle of the night, all of a sudden. And yet because the, the Thessalonians weren't just like tallies on some like evangelistic score sheet for the Apostle Paul, but they were people he really cared about and longed for their good, what we see is that he is really deeply concerned about them. And in spite of numerous attempts to get back to them in the following months, he'd been repeatedly blocked from doing so. And so fearing the worst, he, tries to sell, he decides to send Timothy to go check on the Thessalonians to see how they're doing. And and what we're going to see this morning is that uh, in our passage this morning, Timothy's just returned from this visit, and he's brought back really good news. Uh, the Thessalonians, they're not just surviving spiritually, even though they're facing severe opposition, they're thriving spiritually, so much so that we read in chapter 1 that, that reports of their life-transforming faith in Jesus were reaching cities hundreds of miles away. And so... While Timothy's report is largely positive, there's a few concerns he relayed that prompted Paul to write this, this first letter back to the Thessalonians, chief of which uh, were some really pressing questions they had about the day of the Lord, this day that Jesus promised that he would return to earth, that he would usher in his kingly rule once and for all, he would eradicate evil and set all things right. And and what we see throughout uh, both of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians is that the, the reality and the implications of that day, they're woven throughout all but one chapter of all the books. It's the central theme throughout both of Paul's letters. And, and what we've seen already, though, is that Paul's not just trying to write these letters to answer some intriguing questions about this future day. He's not trying to do like end times trivia just to like show off his knowledge or something. Instead, what he's trying to do is he's trying to help Christians understand how the, the confident kind of hope that we can approach Jesus's future return with is meant to actually have a profoundly transformative effect in our lives each and every day, like today and every day. See, in other words, the, the central theme of Paul's writing in these letters is about how faith in Jesus's return produces a sanctifying hope in us, a kind of hope for the future that doesn't just change us someday, 
but that is changing us each and every day. Kind of hope that causes us to increasingly look more and more like Jesus in the way that we think and act and relate both to God and to others. And we saw in chapter one how that kind of hope was clearly at work in the Thessalonian believers. It was empowering their faith and their endurance in the midst of suffering and in the midst of persecution. We saw in the first part of chapter two how that same hope had been the thing that had fueled Paul's consistently Christ-like life and ministry among the Thessalonians, right? And as we continue our study in chapters 2 and 3 this week, we're going to see how the sanctifying hope that came from Paul's faith in Jesus' return, it also produced in him this enduring Christ-like love and affection for the Thessalonians. See, if chapter 2 was all about Paul defending the integrity of his life and ministry among them, then chapter 3 is all about him defending the sincerity of his love and his affection for them. So he wants them to know you are not a project. You're people that I loved deeply, that I really authentically care about. See, Paul's critics in Thessalonica weren't just using his sudden departure and continued absence to try to undermine the credibility of his ministry. They were trying to sow seeds of doubt in people's mind about the sincerity of Paul's heart for them in the first place, right? And so in response to these accusations, we're going to see Paul showing them in no uncertain terms the truth about his heart for them this morning. And this is really beautiful and compelling picture of his love and affection for the Thessalonians. And, and as we study it this morning, what I want to show you is, is how faith in Jesus' return not only fueled his love for the Thessalonians, but how it also fuels our own authentic and enduring love for the people that God has sent you and me to as well. It's not just for somebody else, it's for us as well. I can't wait to show it to you this morning. And so with that in mind, let's pray and then uh, we'll dive into God's word, see if we can't find the kind of sanctifying hope that faith in Jesus' return produces in us. So let's pray. God, we're so grateful for you. And we're grateful for your word this morning. And as we come again to it, uh, we just long that you'd speak to us as we see this really incredible picture, Jesus, of uh, Paul's love for the Thessalonians, the people that you had sent him to. God, we just ask that you would help us to see it rightly and that you'd help us, Jesus, to be empowered with the same kind of love for the people that you've sent us to. And so we can't do that on our own. We, we can't make that true of us. But we pray this morning that you, by your spirit, would cause us to see the truth about uh, your love through the Apostle Paul, and that it might be reflected in our own lives. And so we ask uh, for our good and for your great glory, would they do that in us this morning, we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 through the end of chapter 3. Uh, reads this way. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul did, again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope and our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And so when we could stand it no longer, we thought it was best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. 
for you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out this way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent out to find out about your faith. For I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you, and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long also to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. For how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that, he may, that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you and may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy all right, so like I mentioned earlier, in chapter 2, Paul spent the beginning of the chapter responding to a bunch of accusations from the critics in Thessalonica who were trying to undermine the credibility of his ministry. And in our passage this morning, we see that, that they must have also been trying to get these young Thessalonian believers to doubt the sincerity of Paul's love for them. And they were using his kind of sudden departure and his continued absence as, as the evidence, as their like supporting evidence to, to prove their point, right? It's like they were saying, if Paul cared about you, he would never have left Thessalonica. He wouldn't have left in the first place. Or at least he would have come back by now, right? But he doesn't care about you. He just, he only cares about himself. He's moved on. He's abandoned you. He's probably forgotten about you already. But as we just read, nothing could have been further from the truth. You see, Paul hasn't moved on, he hasn't abandoned them, and he has certainly not forgotten them. You see, the truth is he could never do that because the reality is that he loved these people. As we walk through the passage, what I want to do this morning is I want to show you seven things we learn about the kind of love that Paul has for the Thessalonians. Seven aspects that we see in the passage this morning. And the first is this. We see that Paul's love for them, it was familial. All right, throughout the letter, we've seen how Paul uses familial language to describe his relationship with the Thessalonians. In verse 17, he refers to them as brothers and sisters, a phrase he uses tw more than 20 times throughout these two short letters. In verses 7 through 12 of chapter 2, just a few weeks ago, we saw how he used this imagery of an innocent child and a tender mother and an encouraging father to describe the way that he'd lived and ministered among them, right? And here in verse 17, when recounting his separation from them, he compares himself to a, to a child that has been orphaned from his parents. See, literally the word that he used there, it means to be forcibly cut away or torn away from someone. It was a, often a word that was used to describe the kind of grief a person felt when somebody that they really dearly loved had died. See, Paul wants them to know that when the, the Jewish leaders stirred up this riotous crowd that had forced them to flee Thessalonica in the middle of the night, that that was not a convenient excuse 
for them to get out of town. Like, oh, sorry guys, time's up, we gotta go, right? He hadn't left them voluntarily, he had been ripped away from them. Like a family who had been forcibly separated from one another. He'd been torn apart from them. And just like a family that had been torn apart from one another would, we see that Paul never stopped thinking about them, and he never stopped trying to get back to them. That's the second thing. You see, Paul's familial love is persistent love. He hadn't forgot about them, and he certainly hadn't abandoned them. On the contrary, we see in the passage in verses 17 and 18, he was doing everything in his power to get back to them. Verse 17, he says, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Verse 18, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again. Right? The picture in your mind should be like Liam Neeson in those Taken movies, right? Like, like, it didn't even cross that dude's mind for a millisecond to stop searching for his daughter, to stop trying to get to her, right? His desire to get to her was deep and intense. There was nothing that was going to stop him from doing it. Everything at his disposal, he spent in efforts to get back to her. See, and that's just kind of like Paul's desire for the Thessalonians. See, this, the passage is full of very strong, evocative language. But the word that Paul uses to describe how much he wants to return to them, it is especially strong. Literally, that phrase that's translated in verse, verse 17, that Paul talked about his intense longing to be with them. When you translate that word literally, it means a super desire. It's almost always used in the New Testament to describe the intensity of our sinful desires that consume and control us. And yet here, Paul uses it as one of just a handful of times where it's used in a positive sense. You see, on the contrary to what the Thessalonians were being tempted to believe, Paul and his companions desperately wanted to get back to them, and they had persistently been doing everything in their power to do so. Their failure to return wasn't for a lack of desire or lack of effort. Instead, we see there was another reason why they hadn't been back to Thessalonica that brings us to the third thing that I want to show you about Paul's love for them this morning. His love was being actively opposed. Verse 18, he says, We wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. The word block there is a military word that was used to describe how kind of a military that was fleeing from someone else would kind of destroy the road behind them so that it would be really difficult for anybody to, to pass and to get to them again. Commentators, they offer a bunch of different ideas about how precisely Satan may have been blocking Paul's way back to the Thessalonians, right? Maybe he was causing those same Jewish leaders who would originally run them out of town in Thessalonica and then followed them to Berea and done the same thing. Maybe he was just causing them to stir up opposition to, to Paul in the broader region or to threaten harm or to, to detain anyone who supported Paul if, if he returned. Right? Maybe it was the, this painful illness that Paul writes about in some of his other letters. He calls the, this the thorn in his flesh. Later, he also calls it a messenger of Satan. Maybe it was some big sin or scandal in the churches where he was serving in that required him to stay there and deal with that instead of going back to, back to them. The truth is, we just have no idea what, what it was. But the point that Paul's trying to make is that whatever was going on is that there was a spiritual battle that was happening. Satan was opposing his return. 
Now, just to be clear, uh, we are not the church where there's like a demon under every rock, right? And like every bad thing that happens to you is like has some demonic explanation under it, right? Like that, that's, not, that's not where we're at. But the Bible is very clear that spiritual warfare is a real thing. Apostle Paul talked about it often. Places like Ephesians chapter 6, he writes this. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers in this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Jesus spoke about the reality of Satan and his opposition to the work of the gospel as well. For example, in, in Mark 4, when explaining the parable of the soils to the disciples, Jesus says that some people are like the seed sown along the path where the, the word is sown, and as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes it away, that's sown in them. Right? That's similar to what Paul is worried about in verse 5 when he expresses his fear that the, the tempter had come and tempted them, that he'd, that he'd stolen away God's word that had been planted in them. There's even an example in Daniel chapter 10 where Daniel recounts a vision of an angel that God had dispatched to him with a message for him. And when the angel gets there, he says, listen, Daniel, I was delayed for like three weeks because there was this, this demonic opposition for three weeks while I was en route to you. See, all that to say, right, there is, there's no need for you to like run and hide in fear or just like walk around with a crucifix in your pocket in case you need to like, like the power of Christ needs to compel you to exercise a demon at any point. Like, like that's, that's not where we're going, right? But the reality is that God's people cannot afford to be ignorant, ignorant or naive about the spiritual battles that we face as citizens and ambassadors in his kingdom. See, Satan is opposed to God and his people, and he doesn't want us to be consumed with love for God and love for others. He wants us to be consumed with love for ourselves. See, and most often, the primary way that spiritual battles wage is not in like demonic possession, but it's in like the luring of our hearts to love ourselves more than we love God and to be consumed with a love for our own good rather than God's glory and the good of others. You see, and so when we give ourselves wholeheartedly to loving God and to loving the people he sent us to, you are stepping head first into the spiritual battles that are waging, that are taking place in the heavenly realms. And those are battles that you cannot win without God's help, right? That's why Paul, at the end of the chapter, he prays that God would clear the way for them to get to him. See, Paul knew he wasn't going to win this spiritual battle on his own, that God would be the one who would have to do it for him. And so he prays and he asks God, God, this road has been blocked and only you can open it again. And just spoiler alert, it would take at least another five years, but in Acts 20 we find out that God did answer Paul's prayers. And he does get a chance to return to the Thessalonians and to spend time encouraging and teaching and training them. You see, but it's because Paul understands the very real stakes of the battle that both he and the Thessalonians are in, right, that we see the fourth thing about his love. Right? His love for them is not just marked by persistence, right? it's marked by a deep concern for them. 
See, Paul's been torn away from these young Christians whom he loves way before they were ready to be on their own. He still had tons of important things he needed to teach them about following Jesus. And, and for months, he'd been after he'd been forced to leave them, there's been no word and no update and no news about how they're doing. And, and he's concerned that they are facing the same kinds of opposition that he himself is facing. And what it's clear in the passage is that that tension, his heart for them, it, like, it's killing him. Right? In verses 1 and 5, he says, So when we could stand it no longer... When we couldn't bear the thought of not knowing how you were doing, we sent Timothy to go find out about you, to find out about your faith, to strengthen and to encourage you. And when Timothy gets back with the good news that although the Thessalonian believers are facing really harsh opposition to their faith, they're still standing strong in Jesus. They're not just surviving, but they're thriving. Paul says in verse 8, he says it this way, but now, since we've heard about your faith, he says, now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. Right, what he's trying to help them to see is like, because when I had to leave you and I couldn't get back to you, right, I was worried that you were facing persecution without me when there was no news month after month after month, and when I thought you may have turned back on following Jesus, says, I was dying inside. And when Timothy returned with the good news that you were standing firm in the Lord, it's like I could breathe again. It was such good news that it was like he was hearing the gospel all over again. I remember a few years ago when Emma broke her arm, we had to go down to Iowa City late at night because the break in her arm was so unique. It had fractured in a couple of different places, and there was this, it was just like a very complicated thing. And I'd been with her for hours just holding her and being with her. And, but when they were going to do the actual procedure to reset her arm, uh, they made me leave the room, which was probably good because I would have punched them all, right? Um, and I will shoot straight with you. Those 20 minutes in the hall, I was dying. Every minute felt like an eternity. And yet when the doctors emerged and they said that everything was great, that the procedure worked, that she was okay, it's like I could breathe again. You see, why, did, why was that such hard news and such good news? Because I love her. You see, in both Paul's desperation for information and his rejoicing in the good report, you can see Paul's loving concern for the Thessalonians. Right? His heart belonged with them. Right? It wasn't just some passing concern. It wasn't just like, well, I hope they're doing good. I guess we'll find out one day what happened. It, was, it wasn't emotionally detached or isolated. It was deep and it was enduring. See, his heart was tied up with their spiritual well-being. And that was the case because he loved them so much. See, before we move on, don't miss that the thing that Paul brought that brought Paul so much tension and relief, it wasn't the status of their physical health. Right? It wasn't their economic prosperity. See, the thing that Paul was dying to find out about and the thing that brought him such relief was their spiritual well-being. They were standing firm in the Lord. See, here's the reality, church. So often, what we tend to pray about is that God will just remove any and all hard things from our lives or from people's lives because the thing that we are most concerned about is our own or others' physical good. 
And it is not wrong to care about that, and it is not wrong to pray about it, but the truth is that God is far more concerned about our spiritual health than our comfort. And he often uses hard things in our lives to create a steadfastness in our faith and a confidence in him that you cannot get another way. See, and that's why it's not only why the good news about the Thessalonians' faith brought Paul such joy and relief, it's also why, I don't know if you've noticed this, he doesn't pray that God would take away the opposition they were facing. Like, I don't know about you, if I hear somebody's facing opposition, the first thing I think to pray, stop the opposition, stop it. It's not even on the list of things Paul prays for them. He knows that they are facing harsh opposition to their faith, and yet he prays instead that God would grow them in love and holiness in the midst of the opposition. I could say so much more about this, but we've got to keep moving, otherwise we'll never get to the rest of the points. But you see, Paul's love for the Thessalonians, it caused him to be so deeply concerned about their faith that when he's blocked from returning to them, he sends Timothy. And, and it, it makes a lot of logical sense why he'd send Timothy to go, right? Like, hey, I can't make it. I'll just send Timothy. He's somebody I trust, right? But it's really important to note that when Paul did that, he wasn't just making the right logical next step. You see, he was making a sacrificial next step. So when Paul says that, that and he thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, he's using, again, a very strong word there. Right? He's saying, we thought it was best for us to be abandoned by Timothy so that, we, so that he could go and check on you. One put, commentator put it this way, it was with a very real sense of deprivation that Paul had said goodbye to Timothy. See, Paul was willing to endure the hardships of ministry, which as we have seen throughout this whole letter, involved active, ongoing opposition and persecution. And he was willing to do that by himself to ensure the Thessalonians' own spiritual growth and security. Right? His desire to check on them, it wasn't just like, hey, I'm really worried, I need to ease my mind. It was this sacrificial act of love for the people that he cared so deeply about. See, but Paul's love wasn't just sacrificial. We see it's also sanctifying. See, at the end of the passage, Paul tells them how he's been praying for them night and day, and he's been asking God to enable him to see them again. So he says, so that we can supply what is lacking in their faith. Literally, the phrase there is, right, to fill the gaps in your shortcomings. See, Paul's not interested in just making converts. He cares about making mature disciples of Christ. People who don't just believe the message about God's grace that saves them from their sin, but people who are actively, ongoingly growing up in that faith. People whose actions and attitudes and desires increasingly reflect the one who came to save them. And Paul's prayer here is masterfully written as this transition from the first half of the letter to the second half of the letter. Right? In the first half, Paul, a lot of what he's doing is defending his own life and ministry among them. Right? And that's what he's praying about here in verse 11 when he, when he prays that, that God would remove this path that's blocking them to get to them. But in the second part of his prayer, he prays that God would address, he's, he's talking about, he's praying that God would grow them in love and in holiness. And that's at the very heart of what the second half of the, of the letter is about. Right? Namely, their need to grow in love and holiness in light of Jesus' return. 
right, now I'm not going to dive into this prayer any further now because we're actually going to come back to it and some of the implications of it in the coming weeks as we dig into the second half of the book. But for now, what's important for you to see is that Paul's love for the Thessalonians, right, it's not this like counterfeit version that we see today where it's like, hey, the definition of love is that you invariably accept and affirm everything about someone. That's what it means to love them. Right? Love is says, hey, everything about you is great. There's nothing that needs to change. I'm on your team. Like You are great as you are. And that's not what real love is. See, Paul's love for them leads him to long for them to be transformed more and more by the gospel, that they would turn from sin, and that they would turn towards holiness, verse 13, so that they would be blameless and holy in the presence of God when the Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So that brings us to the very last thing I want to show you about Paul's love for the Thessalonians. It is eternally minded. It's eternally minded. See, Paul's prayer for their growth in love and holiness, it's about preparing them for Jesus' return. See, he wants them to be found eagerly waiting for Jesus' return, not caught off guard, living in sin and in shame, not just living out their days waiting for the end to come, but increasingly abounding in the kind of sacrificial love for one another that, and the people that God has sent them to. See, but Paul's love for them isn't just motivated by a desire for their eternal future. That's not the, the only thing he has in mind. His love for them is also fueled by his own eternal reality. See, in verses 19 through 20, he says this, he says, for what is our hope and our joy, the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes, is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. He says, Thessalonians, when Jesus comes back to usher in his good kingly rule and reign, when he comes to set everything right, the thing that we are going to be most proud to show him is you. The thing we are going to, to wear as a crown of victory is your faith. And you might be thinking to yourselves, I thought Paul said in Galatians that he would never boast in, in anything except in the cross of Christ. And you're right. He absolutely did say that, but he's talking about something different here. See, in Galatians, he's contrasting boasting in anything that he'd done to, to merit salvation from God. And all over Paul's writings, we see him rejecting every ounce of his own merit to accomplish anything before Jesus. But what he's doing here is he's talking about having this joyfully healthy pride in what Jesus has done through him, what he has given his life for. It's like he's saying, Jesus, look what you let us be a part of. Look what you did through us. Isn't this incredible? These people, they came to faith in you and their lives have been transformed by you and they're standing firmly in you in spite of all that's going on against them. Romans chapter 15 echoes this idea. Paul writes, he says, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. Here's the deal, church. Stuff will not last forever, but people will. And your career will not last forever, but people will. And the accolades and the affirmations and the rewards that you get from people in this world, they won't last. But people will. 
And when Jesus returns, all the accolades and all the careers and all the stuff will just be worthless garbage. But the lives of the people that we have loved and led towards Jesus, they will be a glorious, joyful crowd that we get to lay at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, look what you did. Look what you let me be a part of. That's where my joy is. See, it's that kind of eternal mindset that has fueled Paul's familial, persistent, spiritually opposed, deeply concerned, sacrificial, and sanctifying love for the Thessalonians. It is this beautiful and compelling picture of authentic, genuine love. And the question that you are left with is how do you love people like that? How do you come to love people like that? Paul was with them for three weeks and he loved them like that. Is it just by like trying really hard? Is that, is that how you love people in that kind of a way? Is it just by like feeling really guilty that like you're supposed to do that and so like you kind of like suck it up and pull up your spiritual bootstraps and just like, I'm going to really start loving people sacrificially now. Spoiler alert, uh, if you don't already know, that doesn't work. It never has, it never will. You see, like Paul's, see the only way that you love people like that is when you see that you have been loved by Jesus even better than Paul loved them. You see, like Paul's love for the Thessalonians, Jesus' love for you and for me is familial. Right, but he wasn't ripped away from his father. He voluntarily left his throne. And he came voluntarily to seek and to save you, not when you loved him back, not when you were looking for him, not when you were longing for him, but when you were running from him. And his love for you is persistent. There were no lengths to which he was not willing to go. The great king and the creator of the universe, as Philippians 2, gave up his rights and privileges. He became as nothing to be murdered by his own creation so that you might be forgiven and cleansed and adopted into his family. And his love for you, just as Paul's was, was spiritually opposed. Satan comes tempting Jesus in the wilderness, and yet instead of choosing to be consumed with love for himself as he was rightly deserving to do, he instead chooses to be consumed and driven by a love for a father and a love for you and for me. And so it's now through his strength that you and I have the power to fight the spiritual battles that we could not win uh, on our own as we wait for his return. And his love for you is deeply concerned. It's not unemotional. It's not undetached. Just look at the way that he weeps with Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus dies. He knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet his heart is so tied up with their own, so filled with compassion and with solidarity that he weeps with these sisters. The God of the universe has that same kind of love for you. And his love is sacrificial. He wasn't just willing to be left by himself for a while in Athens, but to have his perfect, unhindered relationship with the Father severed, cut off, as he bore the wrath for your sin that you deserved and I deserved. He was willing to be left all alone so that you and I might never have to be alone again. 
And his love is sanctifying. As Hebrews 13 verse 12 puts it, so Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and to bear the reproach that he endured. You see, Jesus, he loved us as we were, but his love did not leave us as we were. It beckons us to come and to follow him, to die to ourselves and to join him outside the camp to join him in a place of, of derision and of shame from this world so that we might find in him all that he has made us to be both now and forever. You see, in Jesus' love for you, it was also eternally motivated. As the writer for Hebrews puts it this way, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. See, Jesus did not go to the cross begrudgingly. He went to the cross full of joy because at the other side of the cross is you with him forever. See, and the only way that we start to love the people that God has sent us to, the way Paul loves the Thessalonians, is when you see that God has loved you like that and better. Ephesians or John chapter 13 says it this way, Jesus' own words, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. See, Jesus' love is transformative, and it produces in us a transformative love for the people God sent us to. It always does. And it's the love of Jesus that we are remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. It's a communion it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for you to remember, to look again at the love of Jesus, to see his body broken and his blood shed in love for you so that all who put their faith in him might have a hope in him that transforms their lives both now and forever. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be your loving savior, the one who is sanctifying you and causing you to look more and more more like him, or you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you during our time of worship, go back and take communion and dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of all that you put your faith in Jesus to be and to do for you. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means to follow him, if he's someone, what his love really looks like, and if it's safe, I just want you to know you're, we are so glad that you are here. But I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's not after a heart that's trying to earn his love. He's after a heart that responds to the unmerited love he shows you by giving yourself back to him completely. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is, and we want to help you get to know him. And so wherever you're at this morning, as we take communion, as we sing, as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, talk with God. You see, some of you are here this morning and you're realizing that your love for others doesn't look anything like Paul's love for the Thessalonians, and that's because you have never known the love of Jesus. See, the kind of love that characterizes the Apostles Paul's concern for the Thessalonians is not man-made. It is God-made. 
Only he can produce that kind of love for people in you. And the reason why you are here this morning is because God wants to show you the magnitude of his love for you so that you might not only receive it, but so that you might be transformed by it and in turn overflow out of it with love for others. See, when others of you are here, and you do know the love of God, and yet as you look at that list that characterizes Paul's love for the Thessalonians, what you realize is that your love for the people that God has sent you to, it doesn't look like that either. I cannot tell you how convicting this sermon was for me to write. So often my love for the people God has sent me to is weak and passing, not persistent. And it's self-serving, not sacrificial. It is far from familial and eternally minded. See, so often my love doesn't look like his. And the answer as I wrestled with it this week is not just again, it's not just like do better and try harder, know what you're supposed to be, do it, be that way, but instead is to look again at Jesus' love for you. To see his unmerited, undeserved, unearned, familial persistent, spiritually offensive, concerned, sacrificial, sanctifying, eternally minded love for you. To let his love for you awe you and amaze you. To let it captivate your heart and your attention. You see, the truth is is that we need Jesus' love to transform and empower our own love for the people that he sent us to. Because without love, we're just like, as Paul says, we're just banging cymbals and clinging gongs. We're just noisy and obnoxious. People don't change. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, you could preach like Charles Spurgeon, but if you don't love people, they are never going to change their minds about anything. The only condition under which people change from the inside out is if they're getting teaching from somebody who they know loves them. Truth without love is just a power play. You see, I hope that you sense in me as your pastor that kind of love for you. One that's authentic and real, that longs for your good. You see, Paul loved the Thessalonians and he showed it to them while he was with them and he reminded them about it while he was away. You see, that he had given his heart to them. He'd not just shared some truth with them. He had loved them as Jesus had loved him and that's why they listened to him. You see, my prayer has been that we might love the people that God has sent us to in the same way. Not so they'll just listen to us, but so they'll listen to the one that we want to point them towards. And so that by responding in faith to him, that we might spend eternity together worshiping him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your love for us. And we're grateful as well for this picture of Paul's love for the Thessalonians. God, meant to reassure them and encourage them, meant to remind them that they could trust him. And God, we are so grateful that your love for us is even better than Paul's love for them. We pray, Jesus, might you fill us with that same kind of love for the people that you've sent us to. God, to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you've called us to be a part of their maturing. Might you cause us to love people the way you have loved us, Lord Jesus. 
Might the love that you fill us with be familial and persistent. Might it be so strong that it's opposed in the spiritual realms. Might it be concerned and sacrificial and sanctifying. And most of all, might it be motivated, Jesus, by an eternal mindset with you. Jesus, we can't make that true of ourselves. Would you cause it to be true of us, we pray. Amen.